everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Well Actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. This is your host, Fernanda Prates, and I come to you today with some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that if you want Conor McGregor content, I'm not going to be able to help you out today. Sorry, but you're just going to have to settle for basically every other podcast that exists on this amazing and infuriating hellscape called the internet. The good news, though, is that if you're on the market for some stories about Mark Coleman and his leathery nutsack, I've got just a guess for you. Okay, that sounded a lot less weird in my head. Maybe some context will help. Today, I will be joined by Ant Evans, a self-proclaimed professional combat sports storyteller, and I say this as a big compliment, a fellow Twitter grump. A talented, sharp, and funny Twitter grump at that. Evans co-wrote the book, Quitters Never Win, My Life in the UFC, which tells the story of this guy you may have heard of. He's called Michael Bisping. You know, British, strong personality, managed to get a UFC title while basically fighting with one eye. Turns out the fighting with one eye, it's not even the craziest part of Bisping's life. Evans also worked within the UFC for more than a decade in multiple roles, including head of media relations and content chief for UFC Fight Pass. He's got a newsletter now called The Ultimate Insider, which features essays and unique stories like the one involving Mark Coleman and his leathery nutsack. See? Context. I told you I'd get there. Basically, Evans has been in every side of this business. And if you follow him on Twitter, you know he's not shy about voicing his opinions on it. So you can see why I really, really wanted to have him on this humble little show of mine. I still don't know why he agreed to it, but here we are. So let's just get to it before he comes to his senses and changes his mind, shall we? Okay, before I do the polite thing and formally greet my guests, uh, I would like to say that this is a very exciting first for, well, actually, this is our very first time featuring a British accent. <laughs> I am honored to bestow this honor upon you, and Evans, welcome to this podcast. Well, thank you very much, and uh, unfortunately, it's probably only half a British accent these days. I've, uh, I've been living in the United States for nine years, and I've got this weird mid-Atlantic twang that has... Uh, left me a, a shunned character when I go back home. <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, you sound very British to me. Like, seriously, as, as far as I'm concerned, you could be Dame Judy Dench, and I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's an insult to me or her, more, but I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. Not an insult. Big fan of J Dame J Judy Dench. Um, okay, so I there's so much ground that I want to cover that I struggle to even figure out where to begin today. But I guess we'll start with the book, um, Quitters Never Win, for our listeners and knows. But I will confess publicly that I have not had a chance to read it in full yet. But I did start the book yesterday. And I'm not just saying this because Ant is here. Because, in fact, I'm so bad at lying that you would tell right away if I was lying. But I couldn't put it down. I think I'm probably about 60 pages in at this point, but I did cheat a little bit and go straight to a part that I was interested in discussing today, and I'll, I'll get there eventually. But my first question for you, and as a fellow writer, writing or even like co-writing a whole book low-key sounds like a full-on nightmare to me. So my first question uh, is about the process. Like, how how tough was it? Well, thank you for the uh, compliment. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm a, a bigger fan of your work. Um, so uh, I, I really appreciate that. It's, you know, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, 
I can tell you how it how it started. Me and Mike have known each other for for a very long time, and we you know we're mm-hmm. we're pretty close. You know, uh, when I worked at the UFC, I was the first job I took there was was head of PR in the UK, and he was you know he was basically at one point the entire roster for the UK. And you know, <laughs> I always joke that the UK office started off with Marshall Zelaznik, Jackie Parajian, me, Michael Bisping, and a bar tab. But uh, with Bisping around, <laughs> it was a hell of a bar tab. Uh, so. We know each other very well, and we always talked about like one day doing a book together because one of the techniques I used when I was doing PR is I would do blogs, you know, with Bisping. You know, when he mm-hmm. and I would, you know, get on a phone call, and you know, I'm I'm getting ready to fight Brian Stan. Tra- training's going great, and you know, pepper it with some nice insults that Mike likes <laughs> to do. Uh, I mean, I also did people like Misha Tate and uh, John Jones, and I did Chael, Anderson Silva, Rampage, uh, but. Because me and Mike, uh, you know, grew up pretty clear, we're pretty much the same age. Mm-hmm. We grew up within forty miles of each other. I, I can get his voice a, a lot easier than I can say Misha Tate. Uh, <laughs> and we always talked, yeah, we always talked about doing a book. And then uh, he was like, "Look, my agents sold the rights to the book. Do you want to do it?" And I'm like, "Yeah," uh, but it wasn't quite as simple as that because uh, the the publishers in the UK, where when it came out last year, they were. I got on a phone call with him. I could, you know, when you get on a phone call, in, you're not in the room, but you can somehow still feel the tension in the room that you're connected to by the phone. And I had to say, listen, guys, I'm sure every time you have a celebrity or a sports person do an autobiography uh, and you suggest, you know, hey, we've got this writer who's interested or this award winning writer, the celebrity goes, hey, no, I've got a sister. Uh, who does a bit of writing, you know, or, hey, I've got a friend from high school who really enjoyed writing, but, you know, the school newspaper, why don't we do it with that guy? And I was, mm-hmm. and they kind of like, this nervous laugh came out, so I knew I was onto something with them, and that, that was what they were worried about. And I was like, look, mm-hmm. I am a writer, I'm a professional writer, uh, but how about this? I'll do you a chapter, I'll send it to you, and if you say, hey, nice, but not what we're looking for, just tell me that. Don't tell Mike. And I will then tell Mike I'm too busy to do it. How's that? And they're like, fair enough. Anyway, I sent, did a sample chapter. I think I did the chapter around Jorge Rivera, that, that fight at UFC 127. And uh, they like they loved it. It's like, we love the voice on page. You know, it sounds like Michael. I said, well, it is. You know, I did. <laughs> it is Mike. Mike says every word and he approves every word. You know, I just kind of tidy it up and chop and change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how I got the gig. And once I got the gig, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> no turning back now. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, how many thousand words? What's the deadline? Because uh, I was expecting like you know, nine months. Nah, nah, three months. Oh, like wow, months. that is insane. That's like three months. Uh, no. What? No. And I was like, have you worked with Michael Bisping? He doesn't get back to you every time. You know? <laughs> Mike's a busy guy, you know? Like, even when he's got nothing to do, he might not answer his phone sometimes. Uh, so it, it kind of stretched into well, closer to four months, four and a bit months. But the uh, process was great. I mean, I knew his story. Most of the time mm-hmm. I was in, in the room or I was at the fights. Uh, and we was, you know, we would, one of the things that Mike said right from the start, which I don't know if you got to this part yet, but uh, one of the things he said right from the start is, and I wanted to talk about when I went, I got sent to prison. And yeah, I knew that. I did. Yeah, you know, Dana White knew that. And a mm-hmm. few of the executives who were around in 2005, 2006 knew that. But 
that has never got out there. You know, no, mm-hmm. no one has ever said, you know, Michael Bisping went to prison. You know, he, yeah. he could easily got away with that and never talked about that for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he felt it was important to, to, you know, to explain where he came from and, you know, uh, that his life was, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't born with uh, amazing abilities and, you know, uh, and, you know, Dana White's cell phone, uh, you know, wasn't, uh, no, uh, f- cell phone number wasn't handed to him. He had to work for everything. And he, oh, he, he made mistakes and he made mistakes along the way. But, you know, the biggest one was the one that got him in prison. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, man, if, 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 let's, let's do a warts and all, you know, look yeah. at your, your life and your career. It's a better story. I mean, that was part of the, the pressure. It wasn't just the word count. Cause I remember, yeah. Bash, I was on uh, sometimes I would go right at Costa Coffee because it's less noisy in there than it is in my house with my five year old. And uh, I remember, like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll now do a word count. You know, I'll, I'll see how I'll add up all the chapters and I'll see how much I've done so far. Yeah. And it was sort of 60,000 words. I was like, how the hell can it be 60,000? It was 60,000 words two months ago. <laughs> 60,000 words doing? is not a lot. Like, I, yeah. I'm a wordy yeah. person, <laughs> but the, the, you can see like the writing is very like concise, which I love because I think in bios, like it can get very like uh, just pompous or whatever or self-serving, which uh, it is really not. Uh, I, I did get to the part uh, of prison and it's interesting because like uh, 50 pages in, he's already like lost in Bali as a teenager and then he's already almost killed by a master assailant and then he's yeah. already in prison. So that's a very eventful life. Uh, actually, the part that I want to highlight soon, it's not even the prison part, which though that's super interesting. Uh, I don't know if I'm using the right term because I know prison and jail mean different things in, in the US and abroad, but in Brazil, we yeah. kind of like, yeah, we this the term mean this mean the same but uh what i like the best about the part was because uh, like you said warts and all that makes for a better story and it wasn't uh like i said self-serving and it wasn't uh like he was disguise disguising what happened it was kind of like okay so the circumstances uh were these um a lot of it wasn't necessarily my fault uh but at the same time a lot of it was <laughs> i was the one who you know kick the guy. I shouldn't have done that. And I like that. He said, well, basically like this was something that was happening a lot. Like it wasn't a one-off, like I was getting in trouble. And so it, it, you can see that he takes a lot of responsibility for it. So, um, yeah, that's why yeah, I thought was the most interesting thing about that part. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I grew up, uh, maybe 40 miles away and, and you know, that, that was definitely the culture then, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, underage drinking, binge drinking, you know, uh, I mean, I used to go out drinking, you know, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday nights till, you know, 5am or whatnot. And, you know, meeting a pretty mm-hmm. girl and getting a phone number was, you know, was a distant second to having a good fight. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what, just, just what the culture was uh, back I, then. I don't, yeah. don't know what it's like now. Cause I'm obviously, I'm an old fart like this thing is, but, <laughs> uh, that was just the culture, you know, and it was all fun and games until, you know, someone got seriously, seriously hurt, yeah. you know? And yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my, it's the, the real one of the challenges with 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 the book and, and with Mike is you know it's like no dude you know this is I know you're embarrassed about mm-hmm. it you know but mm-hmm. we can't show that you were embarrassed in the moment we've got it you've got to put yourself how did you think and feel you know when mm-hmm. you were 20 21 you know you probably yeah. you know, 
And he was like, yeah, I basically didn't see there was any big deal. You know, it was a two-on-one situation. I'd already seen these guys beat up my friend and kick him while he was mm-hmm. on the ground. Uh, one guy was distracting me while the other guy was trying to come behind me. And I was like, if that guy comes any closer, I'm going to kick him. And uh, he did. And, uh, you know, the police saw it. The police were waiting and watching him do this. And he, you know, tried to mm-hmm. run away. And they, they anticipated him uh, sprinting. And, uh, you know, the judge had seen him before and was like, oh, you again. Okay. Clearly you're not lo- learning your lesson with a slap on the wrist. Yeah. I was prison for a month, grab you. Uh, you know, and Mike was at the point where, like, he knew he needed to move on from that. You know, he, he mm-hmm. was already met Rebecca, who we, you know, he married, and you know, they have three kids together. Uh, and she was pregnant, and she was in mm-hmm. prison. And Mike took uh, Mike was so you know slapdash and lackadaisical about going to court again, mm-hmm. you know, for fighting again. Uh, he took Rebecca and they were planning to, you know, uh, they drove there together and planning on driving back together. And he had a, a, um, an interview for a promotion at work later that day. So he was, oh, cool. I've got to wear a shirt. Oh, two birds with one stole. I'll wear the shirt to to the same shirt to the interview as I'm going to wear in court. No problem. You know, and he, and he took a couple of, he took like 200 uh, pounds with him, about $300, uh, thinking, yeah, okay, slap on the wrist. I'll probably have to give him, you know, up to 200 pounds and walk out of there. I didn't. He got he got a he got four weeks in jail instead. Yeah, uh, it's it's very. I, that was what I should have done. Sort of told the story, but you can do it a lot better than I can. Uh, that's in the book. Uh, I spent four months get, getting this story, so yes, I do know it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like you said, uh, he insisted on it, right? So, uh, but just in terms of, so basically, it was all over the phone. You would call him. You guys would go over the stories, and then you would put it to paper, and then you would run it past him. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of back and forth. And sometimes you know, when it was important stuff, we, you know, uh, I mean, important stuff, I mean, what I say is like, uh, stuff that I knew he would be sensitive about, mm-hmm. uh, we would write it together. Like now mm-hmm. I, I, he would, he would be on the phone, like literally for hours and hours a night. Uh, and I, I would say, okay, be quiet. I know it's hard. Be quiet. It's going to take me a couple of minutes to write that. And then I'll read it back to him. And he go, no, that, you know, I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't that embarrassed by it. Or, you know what, I was probably a little more prideful or, you know, it, yeah. uh, with, with Mike, this is because he's such a, a good broadcaster and mm-hmm. he can speak so well. He's good at talking about things. You know, Conor yeah. McGregor landed that left hand and that man, you know, he's good at talking about things. Great at talking. I think he's one of the best broadcasters the UFC has on his roster. But, you know, then mm-hmm. again, you know, he's one of my best friends. Uh, so <laughs> a maybe little biased. biased. A little biased. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> I do uh, like him, though. Uh, I think he's yeah, very he's authentic great. and organic. And I really like that. So there's that. He's got my endorsement to it. And I and uh, sure. I don't really know him. So <laughs> that's unbiased. Yeah. Um, but, but what he's, you know, what he doesn't do is I know he's good at talking in great big blocks and I'm like mm-hmm. yeah and I kept saying stop how did you feel about that stop how did you feel about that well why mm-hmm. did you do that and it, the kind of interview technique I was kind of using was like almost like a six-year-old why <laughs> why but why why <laughs> you know and you know sometimes to annoy him on purpose to kind of get <laughs> get him to re-experience the emotion because that's what that's what you know he said he wanted honesty mm-hmm. and uh that's kind of sometimes how you get it. You know, you have to kind of strip away at that, you know, well, I, you know, I'm very embarrassed and, you know, humbled about it, by it. And I'm like, but at the time, you know, getting into fights and, you know, getting drunk, that sounded kind of cool. 
you know? It's yeah. like, oh, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, at the time, I thought it was fantastic. You know, what else you got to do on a Saturday night? Uh, and I was like, all right, that's what we got to approach it. You know, mm-hmm. and it's not 40-year-old you mm-hmm. doing this. It's 20-year-old you when, you know, you're a little di- you're a bit of a different person. Uh, and that's, that's kind of how we approached it. I mean, probably the we didn't have any kind of disagreements. I and mean, occasionally I would say, no, dude, you, you didn't do that because I was there. And, you know, I got a slightly yeah. better memory, you know. I haven't taken so many punches to the head. <laughs> I was uh, conscious you know, at the end of that night, so I maybe remember yeah, that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, You know, but, uh, like, but the rule was if, if he was adamant, mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, it was ultimately his say. It's his book. It's not mine. It's his story, mm-hmm. not mine. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I remember not pre- – I was would swear up and down. I remember him not training particularly hard in the early part of his camp for Jorge Rivera because he's like Jorge Rivera, Jesus, you know, it's you know, so what, you know, it's another so so fight. I want to fight a, a Nate Marquardt. I want to fight a Chael Sonnen. Mm-hmm. That is in there, but he insists once the fight was made, he, he was training full blast, and I was like, dude, I remember you eating sausage rolls on that train at <laughs> glasses of wine. <laughs> And I, I couldn't believe you ate that. Disgusting. And, I, you know, and I'm a writer, so I'm like describing this sausage roll as like the most disgusting morsel any human ever ate, you know, since our caveman days. And uh, <laughs> he's like, get that out. I didn't you know. I didn't. I was like, yes, you did. Yes, you did. He's like, honestly, I was training hard. I was like, well, okay, maybe we're both right. Maybe you were training hard because, you know, he's doing, he's getting up at 6 a.m. And, and running six miles, not me. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. with him when he was doing that. Uh, maybe you did train hard, but once, Jorge started doing those videos, then you'd trade like a, a maniac. He goes, yeah. So so that that's how we would handle these little disagreements. Mm-hmm. It seemed like, like you, like you said, you you did the blogs, you were friends, you were close. Um, but did a lot, a lot probably went like you expected, but did anything um, surprise you at all, either about Michael or just the experience of writing that book? I mean, uh, I, I was—I I wouldn't say I was surprised. I—I I, I think, well, maybe mildly surprised. I mean, so uh, one of the things I did to keep it fresh for me, writing, and also um, not ma- try and stop him from going into broadcaster mode and and just mm-hmm. covering a whole, you know, whole wastes of uh, his career and his life, and all, you know, boom, 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 and then happened. Then I, I try and stop that. I would we would do chapters not in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would think we started with when he beat Luke Rockall for the title, you know, mm-hmm. and then we went back to it later. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was to try and break my, my boredom, not boredom, but you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it felt like I was getting so far. You know, I would like reward myself with something I really, you know, was excited to write about uh, with him and, or, you know, and try and confuse him a little bit. So he didn't, uh, you know, give me great big monologues rather than a, a back and forth kind of dialogue to get at how he really felt and thought about a situation. But mm-hmm. I knew there was going to be a, a period of his career, which, which was the uh, Matt Hamill fight mm-hmm. and yeah. the Richard Evans loss, which is his first loss. Mm-hmm. And the Matt Hamill fight at the time was like a hugely controversial and, and the most controversial decision ever. And, you know, mm-hmm. There was a lot of bullshit written about, you know, the it was a hometown decision and bias Ref, bias referee and bias judges. Not a load of bullshit like that was written. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some really uninformed people. But it was certainly a close, close fight where 
you can make a, a compelling case that Matt Hamill won. Uh, mm-hmm. You can make a compelling case that it was a draw. Uh, mm-hmm. Mike is adamant he he won it, uh, mm-hmm. but he didn't really want to go into it because uh, you know that you know he 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 uh, he it was one of the worst like nights of his career probably in, in some ways because he didn't give a very uh, gracious interview afterwards. Uh, mm-hmm. You know there was other things going on in his life and and. and and arguments with his management that all, you know, which he didn't want to go into because it's still a legal case, but it didn't, it all, everything came together where it wasn't a great night for him. And yeah. immediately after that was his first loss. Uh, yeah. So he didn't like this. So this is, this is the one time that he was like, I don't want to go into this. I don't want to go too deep. I was like, we have to, dude, we have to. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah. And what I will say for him is, even though he was adamant, you know, that he won the uh, Hamill fight, I personally mm-hmm. thought he beat Richard. Uh, I think it was a split mm-hmm. decision. Uh, and he's like, no, I didn't. I, I needed to win that second. <laughs> I won the second round. I needed to win the last minute yeah. of that last round, and Richard took me down. I was like, yeah. well, don't you think it was, and he beat me, you know, and that's how he wrote it. He was like, and he won. You know, I, yeah. it wasn't, I don't think it was close, but not close enough that I'm going to argue that I felt because I just didn't feel like I, I, I won. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a point where he we were going through all this Rashad stuff and he was like, uh, uh, Matt Hamill, and he was like, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's basically hours of hours of, you know, someone who's your friend asking you about the worst times in your career over and over yeah. and over and saying, but more, go deeper, go deeper. How did you feel? How did you feel? I mean, yeah, I was annoying me, much less annoying him, <laughs> you know, uh, and finally, like, he was, ah, and I was like, Mike, listen, do you trust me? He goes, yeah, of course I do. I was like, okay, spoiler alert. You fucking won. You go on to win the world championship. You go on to be a Hall of Famer. You go on to be a podcaster. You go on to win, to, to be a, a, an actor and an entertainer mm-hmm. and an interviewer and a commentator. It's like, guess what? You win. You you prove all the critics wrong. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know how you expect this book to end, but that's how it's going to end <laughs> on top of the world. So isn't it a better story to be honest and say, yes, you'd had some real low lows? And he's like, oh, fucking dickhead, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> you and you know, and then we went on. But that, that was that was the only time there was any kind of like real friction between us. Yeah. And speaking of, of lows, that was actually the part that really stuck with me uh, when he talks about his loss to Dan Henderson, um, yeah. AOC 200. And it, it, I'm going to just read a little bit of it because I, I was really, um, I really liked that one bit. Um, UFC 100. You're going to do it, read it in Bisping's voice? Uh, unfortunately, my British accent <laughs> is a little bit sad. I have tried not a hit at parties. I think I'm going to have to practice. I can barely do the American accent. So I'll do okay. it next time. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, this little bit. Okay. Uh, let me, let me concentrate. Do my reading voice. It's very proper. Um, UFC 100 never ended. The image of Henderson arched in midair, swinging the base of his fist downwards towards my unprotected chin was everywhere. On t-shirts, banners, posters, and every UFC broadcast. A plastic figurine, aka a toy for undersexed grownups. That part was 
was great, by the way, <laughs> was released of Henderson swooping down and, uh, with that hammer fist. The final seconds of the fight were omnipresent on every website forum and embedded in every nasty tweet I was sent. I felt like half the world was celebrating the worst moment of my life, and so I hid behind self-deprecating self humor, which one can relate to. Uh, who'd circle into his opponent's best punch? I asked rhetorically in interviews. I was smiling as I spoke, but inside I was crushed. So I, I guess for me, like what really stuck with that part is that this is something that I would imagine, and I'm sure you have seen it personally, having worked with fighters for so long, that a lot of them go through. I mean, can you imagine, we all fail in life, but these people have their failures, like being broadcast to the world and repeated and plastered everywhere over and over. I can only imagine how hard that must be and just... Like you said, having to like bottle that up and act like a higher person in interviews and things like that. So uh, my question for you is really is, I'm sure that you've seen this uh, with other fighters before. And yet, this is something that we don't really hear much about in MMA, right? That part of it. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean you're, you're imagining exactly right. You know, I mean, it is, it's it's like, uh, you know, we, when Bisping fought Henderson, you know, if, he, if he won that, he was going on to, to fight for the world title. And this is his dream. You know, this it, it, in the book we show like uh, he, he didn't grow up. He didn't grow up, you know, rich or anything like that. He, 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 you know, he didn't stand out in any kind of aspect of his life, which is crazy because seeing how talented the fucker is these days with acting and doing all the other stuff. But it, the one thing he had growing up is that he was tougher than everybody else. He was he was a great fighter. You know, he was he mm -hmm. was a kickboxing champion, you know, and a judo champion. And that is his identity, right to his core. That is, fighting isn't something that he does or did. A fighter is what he is, right mm -hmm. to the down to his DNA. And so the Henderson fights like a, it's like you know you and me going for the biggest job interview. We've you know I've, this is my dream job. I've dreamed about doing this, mm -hmm. uh, and not only being told no, but also being told what are you thinking you suck and then getting beaten up and humiliated in front of all your family all your friends uh your children your children's friends uh mm -hmm. and the world's media i mean that's that's what these guys do and you know they, they go out there like now stripped to the waist uh, and just like completely exposed you know mm -hmm. their hopes and dreams and fears are, are completely exposed and yeah it's always that's that to me is like the reason you know i've been in combat sports all my life uh i mean i've always been fascinated with with uh courage and, and fear and how the two uh, interact with each other and i think if you you know you you, you think of like a, the courage of a martin luther king you can watch documentaries but you can't really see it in, in any one real moment unless you know standing down against you know police or something like that but with combat sports you get to see it you get it see it condensed into you know 15 minutes and you get to see like real human physical courage um and you know, people facing down with fears and people really point online to me that's why combat sports is the most compelling type of sport there is i mean it transcends other sports that's why other sports use analogies that they live from combat sports. Oh, look at that. It's like, you know, they're going back and forth. Like it's a UFC fight. They use analogies and you'll, at a certain point, like when I was first gaining, you know, becoming a writer and deciding what, what kind of stuff I wanted to cover. Uh, I mean, I've always been a combat sport fan, but I was like, I, I want to write about this. I, I'm just, just fascinated. And I kind of got sick of hearing, you know, 
soccer commentators talking about the courageousness of uh, soccer players, you know, defending penalty kicks. I'm like, yeah, it takes concentration, a great deal of it, you know, and a yeah. great deal of puns, you know, pizzazz, but it doesn't take courage. Calm down, calm down, you know, or the bravery of tennis players de- defending set points. It's like, get out of here. <laughs> These guys are getting punched and kicked in the face. And they're going out, you know, and most of them like could easily pull out. And yeah, I mean, to me, that is like the most fascinating aspect of, of MMA. You do, and you know, obviously boxing as well. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you you go, you go backstage and you see these guys, you know, you you know, and there's and there's it's weird. Over the years, you you learn kind of the equilibrium. Like people, you know, I'm very friendly with like people like BJ Penn, who you know has never got. You know, never lost five thousand words to tell you. You know, real chatterbox, and you know not to go anywhere near him. The be- the most you can do is give him a wink or a nod because mm-hmm. he's stripping. You know, there's kind of sometimes a lot of fighters kind of strip away who they are day to day until all is left is is a fighter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they strip away the niceties. They strip away, uh, you know, politeness. They strip away their identity as a mother or a father, and all that's left is a fighter. And that is a mental process they need to go through. And uh, mm-hmm. occasionally, you you'll, you'll see like new newbies join the UFC, and uh, they're like, "Oh yeah, so are you looking forward to the fight?" I'm like, "No, you don't. You don't. No, leave them alone. Leave them alone. It's not time for chatting right now." Um, yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question at all. It uh, does. Okay. I, I would argue, though, like there's that there are different kinds of bravery. Like uh, for me, looking at a tennis match, I think that there's bravery in just like putting yourself out there in that way, just because it's like it's a huge court. Everyone's silent. Like to me, those athletes are brave in that they're putting themselves in a the very vulnerable situation, but in, in a very different way. Like they're being judged uh, as well. And, and, you know, really their failures are going to be highly public as well. So I do think that mentally that it, it does take a lot of bravery, maybe because I'm a big wuss um, could be <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> but I think with cage fighting, like it's just, it's all those factors and the physical part. And it, it, to me, that's why I always say, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I mean this in like, it takes kind of like a little bit of craziness to be a cage fighter, just because it's just, you have to deal with all of these moving factors. Uh, inc- you have to be brave in a way that I don't think a lot of normal people can understand uh because you have the vulnerability you have that element of just you know wanting to be the best you that you can be that you have in every high level sport but then at the same time you have very real risks of permanent injury and even worse and you kind of have to compound that all into that 15 minute performance i always say like maybe i could do cage fighting for a living if it was just the cage fighting like if i was transported into that cage for 15 minutes and it just left me there i was probably just like going autopilot but doing the rest and having to walk all the way over there yeah i could i could never do that but uh which i i was gonna mention like uh the whole topic of fear is something that you tackle on your newsletter uh the ultimate insider and you talk about you have the the serious right courage in the cage and i was really struck by the one that you wrote on forrest griffin because uh his focus the focus of his essay right was on the night where when he wasn't afraid and that he was uh he was his fear was that he wasn't afraid enough and i just thought that that was such a mind fuck uh that this fighter is like oh my god 
I'm too relaxed for this situation. And that's yet another layer of it, right? Uh, how was it? Like, how did you get that story out of Forrest, who also seems like a very, very interesting character? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different types of courage. I mean, like most psychologists have a model that there's six different types of courage. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's emotional courage, you know, like telling someone that you've been on, you know, seven dates with or something that you love them, you know, is, is, a, is an emotional mm-hmm. risk, you know. They're not going to beat you up, you know. Uh, <laughs> they might say, yeah, I don't feel like that. that we're just having a good time here, you know. So there's yeah, I'd rather get beat up, to be honest. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if well, I had to choose, choose I'll, I'll take the physical damage. But... <laughs> yeah, well, t- teenage aunt would probably agree with you, but, um, you know, but uh, there are different types of courage, but physical mm. courage is what, psychologists t- tend to refer to when there's a, a clear and present physical danger okay. that makes you afraid and mm-hmm. that's the thing you know uh, that's there's a i've spoken to a bunch of people uh, who write about the sport including you and i, I kind of identify like it's like why don't we talk about fear and courage mm-hmm. anymore it's yeah. and i've come up with a couple of reasons that i'm exploring mm-hmm. uh but what is not up for grabs, what is absolutely cast iron fact is you cannot be courageous unless first you are afraid. Mm-hmm. If you are not afraid, if you are not afraid, what is there to be brave about? You know, like my wife is terrified of roller coasters. I'm not. I, I, I couldn't care less. They barely excite me, you know. Uh, Ooh, it's not got brave. a badass over here. Yeah, it just, you know, it just doesn't, it just, you know, uh, I used to race go-karts. That was scary. But, you know, being okay. on a track, I know I can't fall off. It's not not that scary. But for my yeah. wife, it's terrifying. So yeah. she's been brave. I'm not. You know, see, don't pat me on the back. Pat her on the back. She's going on anyway because she's mm-hmm. afraid. Uh, and being afraid is, I mean, there's, there's a theory in, uh, not to get too deep, but uh, there's, there's a, or, or, or uh, to Joe Rogan on you here, but there's a theory in uh, <laughs> <Please> biology. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bro, I don't want to bro science here and ruin your podcast. Uh, I'd appreciate but, that. Uh, Thanks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a theory that uh, fear is the first emotion and the first thought that any organism mm-hmm. uh, felt. That that it is biology's way of saying stop, mm-hmm. do not go forward, do not eat mm-hmm. this. You know, keeping us alive. But fear does really great things for, for us whenever there's danger out and it's a lot of the things are particularly useful if you're about to have a cage fight i mean everyone knows about adrenaline it makes you a little stronger mm-hmm. but it's not just that you're bl- i mean if i know you've noticed that some of the, the gashes we see in you know in, in in the ufc or bellator it's like oh my god how is that not bleeding you know because when mm-hmm. i shave and i nick my neck it bleeds for 48 hours and i've got like 10 tissues on it to soak it up there's you know mm-hmm. cowboy Cerrone and he's barely bleeding at all through a gash that you could drive a truck through. Well, it's because fear has clotted cowboy's blood. It stops him bleeding as much, and it also mm-hmm. uh, releases a, a collagen that that will stop uh, that will clot faster. Uh, your lungs adapt; they drag in more oxygen. Um, you know, there's this, there's a there's a phenomenon called perceptional tunneling. When fighters say, "I didn't hear the bell, that's why I hit him," and you're like, "Come on, I heard the bell, and I was in the back row. What are you talking about? I was yeah. in the bathroom, or I was at the bar. I heard the bell. What are you talking about? You didn't hear the bell." Well, mm-hmm. perceptual tunneling, uh, when fear is is present in the brain, it can recognize that okay, the danger's right in front of me. It's that guy punching and kicking me. 
you know, uh, I don't need to hear. I can, hearing is now a distraction because I can see the danger. No one's coming from behind me. It'll switch your hearing off because it's a distraction and reroute the attention to your eyes. So they literally don't hear the bell. You know, it's fear does very like a lot of crazy things to the body, and all of them are useful to an MMA fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, yeah, that's the that's thing. Uh, that's the subject I'm exploring on uh, my Substack blog. It's awesome. Um, the newsletter is kind of new, right? You only started it. I think it was last October. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I've only whenever I get time. I'm trying to go churn out like maybe one every ten days from now on. And it's not all yeah, highbrow they're... stuff. I, I also have. <laughs> I was just gonna say, as you heard, it's kind of called. It's not what I do here in this podcast. Okay, it takes brains, so it takes a while. Uh, but before, uh, I kind of wanted to touch on. We've been talking about it sort of for a while, but your previous uh, previous life <laughs> working with the UFC. I think you told me, but so you worked uh, within the UFC in some way or another for was it twelve or thirteen years? It feels like twenty, but yeah, it was twelve. <laughs> And uh, what what were some of the, the the jobs you had there? I know head of head of you were head of PR for a while. Then there was USC Fight Pass. Just walk me through a few of the things you did for them. Yeah, I mean, look, I had a, I had a great ride with UFC. You know, uh, you know, I I basically pushed my way into into a job there. You know, I, I, yeah, I you know. Uh, I finally got in front of Marshall Zelaznik, who's one of my best friends now. Uh, you know, and sat down. I was like, "Hey, in the UK, you need to do this. This is the media you need to do. You need to position mm-hmm. it like this and this." And and I walked out, and I was like, "God, I just nailed that interview. My goodness, <laughs> best interview ever. Why were you nervous going in?" And what I didn't know is Marshall turned around to uh, Jackie Parajan, who is his, his vice president, and went, "I didn't understand the word, one word that guy just said, but he sounds confident. <laughs> we should probably hire him. <laughs> Fake it until you make it. That's yeah. the lesson." Yeah, so you know, I, I, we helped launch the brand and, and yeah. uh, in uh, in the UK. Uh, mm-hmm. That that was probably the, the. I mean, you know, I did, did some fun things like relaunch the Hall of Fame and you know, sign a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff to Fight Pass. But in terms of stuff like, because I'm I'm a huge MMA fan, the stuff that I'm probably the proudest of is the heavy lifting in the UK and you know, a couple of the markets like Australia, Canada, where no media would cover it. You know, it, you know, it was beneath their dignity to cover it. Um, mm. And if they, if you did tell them, you know, hey, why don't you cover this? They'll go, yeah, sure. I'm going to do a story about how it's human cockfighting. Thanks for letting me know. Evil human cockfighting has, has arrived on British so- shores from the nasty Americans, you know. Uh, it is to, to kind of like help that sea change to where now you see it on the BBC, you see it, you know, in the Daily Telegraph. That's probably the, the stuff I did that... Uh, was the most exciting for me as a you know MMA fan? Yeah, I hear that. Um, I, I've heard rumblings that you did such a good job at that that you had actually a rival promotion um, threaten you. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, you heard <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. I wonder how I, how I can tell this story. Uh, Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Take your so, time. Take your time. Yeah, one of the um, you know, I'm trying to see. Okay, if I if I dodge too far left, I might get threatened again. If I go too far right, I could get sued. So what's the <laughs> what's the middle ground to tell this this anecdote? Uh, so okay, so one of the problems with 
one of the problems that we needed to overcome in the UK, and this is 2006, 2007, 2008, was uh, there, were, there was MMA there. Obviously, that's where Bisping and the Dan Hardys came from. But one of them, mm-hmm. Cage Rage, um, and, I, and I, I missed that promotion. That was a good promotion. You, know, you got to see Vita Belfort and Anderson Silva. But the way they marketed it was, and I'll do a, a Cockney accent, it's like, it's gonna be a massacre. Blood is gonna be running in the streets. People are gonna sacrifice babies. I mean, it, it was crazy. You know? It was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! We can't say that. You know, it's like, it's, oh, it's I, not actually, me. I'm just very curious now. It's kind of very, very my speed. Yeah, it was. It, it was like, <laughs> you know, and and we would try and do interviews and stuff like that. They're like, yeah, so this cage rage stuff. You know, it's it, why'd you call it cage rage? It's like it's all people getting angry and juiced up on steroids, and no technique and just wailing away. And I'm like, no, that's cage rage. You know, well, that's in a cage, and that's the same stuff. It's some of the same people. So how can you say it's different? So it was a problem. And mm-hmm. one of the things I, you know, it's my job is to say, no, you don't need to cover them. Don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to us. We're the proper stuff. They're just a knockoff, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, there was, you know, a, a legal letter or two going back and forth. They, you know, they did do advertisements um, going, ultimate fighting has arrived in London. I'm like, well, you're all from London. The company's <laughs> in London. Every fight is in London. When you say arrived in London, what do you mean? <laughs> And it's not Ultimate Fight, it's Cage Rage, you know. This yeah. Ultimate Fighting is a UFC trademark. So gradually I, you know, turn heads and you know, you know, what's a good PR person do? I, I give the media who are interested in covering it so much information, so much great access. I took them out for a lot of really expensive state dinners, and that helps too. Uh, mm-hmm. they stop paying attention to the cage rage. Now, mm-hmm. what happened then was Dave O'Donnell, who is one of the Cage Rage owners, didn't like that. So mm-hmm. I'm sat, you know, kind of belly full, full with uh, leftover turkey a couple of days after Christmas. And my phone rings and, you know, because I work for the UFC, you know, heaven forbid you ever ignore a phone call, you know, doesn't matter mm-hmm. if it's day off. You know what that's like. Yep. Uh, yep. So I answer it and... Uh, there's a Cockney, a very angry Cockney fellow on the end. He's like, is that Anthony Evans? I'm like, yeah. Works for the UFC? I'm like, yeah. Right, you fucker. And away he goes, you know. <laughs> I haven't done anything about it. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I knew who he was. I was like, well, I kind of fucked with him a little bit first. I was like, Dave who? Dave O'Donnell from Cage Ridge. What's that? Never heard of it. You know, I, and I've, oh, I was, no. <laughs> I was, from the safety of my home. 300 miles away from 300 miles away from London I'm, I'm messing with the guy and look I like Dave yeah. O'Donnell we, we, we had a great laugh about all of this years later we like mm-hmm. had a drink and we were both cracking up you know so yeah. uh, but at one point he goes I haven't done anything about it yeah but I can always send some boys around I'm like oh that's a that's a physical threat you know uh, mm-hmm. and you know being a you know maybe I've been hanging around with Michael Bisping too much even back then because <laughs> I had a smart ass reply and I goes, Well, don't send any heavyweights because all yours fucking suck. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the more I thought about it, it's like, you know what? That was a threat. So I contacted the UFC HQ in, in Las Vegas and said, Hey, look, you know, I've had yeah. a threat. Uh, you know, I told first of all, I told my boss, Marshall, and I was like, He goes, Okay, we'll talk mm-hmm. about it in the office. And I walk in the office, you know, basically expecting a hero's welcome. You're like, oh, Ant, are you okay? Whoa, you, you sure told him, man. Oh, wow, what a brave character you are. Wow. And, like, it wasn't even water cooler talk. So that that, that was a bit <laughs> disappointing because, you know, 
I had a had a you know basically a death threat on behalf of the yes. UFC. And, it was oh, your near death experience, and it just went unacknowledged. Yeah, I can e- exactly. See. Yeah, my, you know, my, <laughs> the, the bravest thing I'd ever done in my life went you know completely unreported. You know, didn't even warrant wow. you know water cooler chatter. But uh, well, then I got UFC now our H- listeners know you're gonna someday they're gonna write sonnets about you. I'm going to have a statue (laughs) sent to your home, you know, real size uh, in honor of your bravery, because I am uh, terribly impressed. This is a beautiful story, a beautiful tale. You should write your own book about your own life. And this is going to... And just tell that story. (laughs) Just that one story told in great detail. I would love to co-write it. And all my interesting stories can fit on the back of a stamp, so there'd be no printing cost. It'd be great. Speaking of interesting stories, though, uh, I know there's another one uh, involving uh, my COVID thing. You you hinted at that on your Twitter, because I remember you were asking people uh, about your newsletter. You wanted to choose your next topic, and one of them was that time you impersonated Michael Bisping. Uh, so I, I would like that that newsletter hasn't come out yet. So I would really like to hear that story from you. Well, he he outed me. He outed me. That's the thing. He went on his podcast, and uh, you know, I mean that that man delights in making my life a misery. You know, <laughs> I mean, I have a, I have a high tolerance. I was the Bisping whisperer. You know, like I remember asking yeah. Dana White once. I was like, why do I have to deal with Bisping, Rampage, Chet Congo, T Ortiz, and basically everyone who's crazy he goes well they all like mm-hmm. you uh yeah, okay the asshole whisperer happened yeah there you go the asshole expert. yeah yeah uh, but um yeah oh god uh, <laughs> it's, look, i'll start off by saying it's impossible to justify what i did i know i did wrong um <laughs> I'm not proud of it. oh my god <laughs> I'm not the best proud stories of start like that <laughs> seriously that's the beginning of every good story go ahead yeah and i will say directly the bisping i kept the fact that you went to prison i didn't tell anyone not a soul and uh, you outed my moment so yeah so <laughs> uh, you know this is early days this is like 2007 mm-hmm. and i'm you know uh, I, I i did i did pr for ricky Hatton before i came on the ufc and, and much of my early success quote unquote success and placing ufc stories was calling people up who owed me favors like hey remember when i gave you R- ricky hatton you know when you needed him you know hey remember when i gave you access backstage uh well i need your help now i need you write a ufc story so i look cool to my new bosses you know uh, and yeah. i was already kind of running out of those you know i had to do some real work now i had to you know pitch and you know look this is you know i, mean, look, I didn't have the facts on my side how popular ufc was already but it was still the the media didn't want to cover it they didn't feel comfortable covering it they only felt comfortable mm-hmm. uh doing is ufc gonna replace boxing because they they at least knew half of that they knew they knew boxing <laughs> yeah they could no. understand one part of that sentence yeah exactly so you know they, they they don't didn't they didn't want to make no one wants to make an asshole of himself on, on their own you know byline uh so I pitched and pitched and pitched, and I can't—I I can't remember if it was Virgin Radio or BBC Radio, but it, it was radio. And I was like, mm-hmm. I pitched and pitched and pitched and pitched, and they kept saying no. I was like, Come on, you've had, you know, equestrian, uh, you know, players. You know, who even knows what that is? Does it involve a horse? You know, does it? 
Does it have a stick? <laughs> no. Do they fire bows and arrows off the back of the horse? Don't know. No one knows. You've had, you know, you've had all these obscure people on. This is a guy yeah. who sells out the MGM, uh, you know, the um, the Manchester Arena and the O2 Arena, and you won't have him on. And so finally, I ground them down. And they're like, "This guy isn't going to go away, is he?" And I showed up their offices and you know stuff like that. Um, so finally, I got Mike on. I'm like, Mike, this is a big one. And uh, we were going to call. It was, I think the call the call was uh, to 10 a.m. on the night before, mm-hmm. the day before we were in uh, Dublin doing PR, you know, back to back to back interviews. I was like, the big one, though, is, is the phone call tomorrow. Okay. Okay. So Mike being Mike, and it, Mike, Mike's teetotal now. He hasn't drank since, uh, I think, like Thanksgiving, but. That wasn't always the case, was it? Uh, so <laughs> me, him, and Marshall and a couple of the journalists go out drinking. And, you know, uh, 11 o'clock comes, then, then, it, then it's a nightclub. And then the nightclub just, you know, locks the doors and lets us keep drinking because it's Michael Bisping and some of them are the fans. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm that, I'm like that guy, you know, not my boss. Marshall's the last thing. He kept drinking. But I stopped drinking around 3 o'clock. I was like, i got to sober up. So I've got that awful kind of like headache that kind of hangs off the – three inches off the top of your eye because I'm yeah. so up and I've got that headache. I'm like, okay, Mike, let's go. You know, Rambi, I need you fresh for the, this interview tomorrow. It's only, te- it's only 10 minutes, but it's really important. We've got to nail this interview. Mm-hmm. And then it, you know, it opens up all the, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, <laughs> and then Marshall turns to me and goes, and you make sure he gets back to the hotel. I'm like, why am I the babysitter? Where are you going? You're the boss. And Marshall disappears into the night and to his hotel room to sleep, no doubt. So I finally dragged Mike out at like, oh, let's say 6 a.m., you know, and he's like, oh, the night isn't over yet. And I'm, oh, it's, no, it must have been 7 a.m. because people are walking to work. I'm like, see that guy wearing the shirt? He's walking to work, Michael. That isn't a nightclub shirt. That's a shirt to go work in an office, which is probably open up in 30 minutes' time. The night is, in fact, over. over. That's <laughs> That is the sun in the sky. That is definite proof that the night's over, Michael. We're going, you know, I'm going to get you a coffee and you're going to do this interview. Ah. Anyway, I I get him to his hotel room. I'm like, I will be back here in like two hours time. And I knew what he'd do. He locked his door. But what he didn't know is I'd already worked with him for a year by that point. I got a key. I got Mm. a key card. All right. Smart. I know. A good PR person my... comes prepared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was not my first rodeo with, with this thing. So <laughs> I, I, I'm open the door like I'm going to wake you up, you asshole. And he barricaded it. But, you know, I'm I'm not a small guy, so I pushed through his barricade. And he's like, oh, fuck up. Blah, blah. I was like, you're doing it. I was like, I can't. I can't. Blah, blah. And I'm looking at him. And I could see that when he got into the room, he was so drunk he couldn't figure out how to – you know, basically pull the bed sheets back and get in. So what? Okay, it does- that's that's an alarming sign. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't know because uh, I'm I don't I'm don't drink uh, at all. I'm very pious and pure, uh, but. <laughs> oh. I drink heavily. Everybody in this podcast knows. <laughs> so I am aware that when you reach that stage, it's, uh, yeah, it's worrying. I would say that that's the point where you start worrying. Like when you oh, can't figure yeah. out basic things like sheets and chairs and beds and zippers. That's kind of like, yeah, that's a sign right there. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. It's basically like <laughs> what he done is, is like laid on top of the bed and then done this kind of like 
gator roll to get some sheets over the top of him. And he was like <laughs> wrapped up so tight. I think he was, I, I was like, you're going to die in there if I don't get you out. So I'm going to get out. Can you imagine I, death by sheet? Yeah, just, yeah. Like, you got through like all of this mass assailant, uh, Bali, jail, grown men in a cage, and a sheep kills you. You are a hero, and you kept Michael from a very undignified death. That's how that my bravery book is getting bigger and bigger. My hero, yes, you, I, I can't to wait to co write it. I you will be my agent. It with great. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, please, please, please. If I can't, fuck off, I can't. I'm like he really can't can he i'm like all right well i'm i'm like i'm like all right well, I, I can't even face under the the, the the producer texts me uh is michael gonna be ready in you know an hour i'm like oh yeah yeah you know i'm like i got you a starbucks he goes ah oh, it's overpriced for off i was like you good point but please drink it you know please wake <laughs> up i'm begging him and then finally he tries to get a fire extinguisher and fire it at me to get me out the room and he can't oh, figure wow. out how to work it you can't figure out how to work it. I'm like, well, if you can't figure out how to use something that's designed to be as easy as possible so it saves lives, you can't go <laughs> on the radio, can you? And represent our company. But okay, so I but that's what confuses me. He can't use it. I think the part that he wasn't able to use the sheet is more concerning than the fire extinguisher. To be honest, because I feel well, like I might struggle with a fire extinguisher, but just being horizontal shouldn't be a problem. I mean, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> I wasn't thinking as clearly as maybe I should. I was drinking with Michael Bisping from like 5 p.m. till like 3 a.m. before I sobered up, and I was on two hours. Yes. Possible, I wasn't sound of mind either. But I definitely, <laughs> I'm going to say I wasn't because obviously, but that's what when I you figure it out. Yes. <laughs> but that's when you figure it out. He wasn't really going to be able to do the radio hit. Yes, and that's when uh, <laughs> uh, an evil thought hatched in my brain. But you know what? We don't sound dissimilar, do we? We're from the same area. He was only going to repeat the talking points that I wrote anyway. It's oh, only no. 10 minutes. Oh, Why don't no, I go on as Michael Bisping? <laughs> and that's what I did. I went on live radio and pretended I was Michael Bisping talking. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, like, it was only sort of like 1.7 million listeners. It wasn't a oh, big deal. My, were you terrified? I would have been. I, you know what? I was a guy in the movie where, uh, you know what? I was Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, wasn't that? I was Luke Skywalker, and I'm either going <laughs> to swing over the bri the bridge that's broke, or I'm going to get shot by the stormtroopers. I'm like, the stormtroopers <laughs> are definitely going to shoot me, but if I swing, I've got a chance. So okay. if I do this interview like this, I've got a, I, I've got a chance of keeping this relationship with this radio station going. But if I cancel, say Mike can't do it now, with no time. Yeah. We're done. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna look skywalker myself across this bridge. I'm gonna do it. And that's what I did. <laughs> so you saved his life and uh, his uh, radio hit. I did, I did his radio well, it's more for me, if I'm honest. I mean <laughs> True, I was wrong. Mike would still be a millionaire to this, you know, whether he did that or not, if I if I did that or not. But you know, it would make my life harder. So I, I took the very selfish decision to uh, impersonate Michael. Oh my god! Uh, okay, the, so because uh... I've been pitching like he's like UFC's Ricky Han. He's so charismatic, and uh, I got an email. I got an email afterwards saying, "Oh, thanks for that." And you're right, he is charismatic. I was like, "God damn right, he is." <laughs> I can't believe you pulled it off, man. Uh, what I, I've I've talked about this in like 
participations in other podcasts, but not maybe in this one. I've mentioned it, but I did PR too. Uh, Ant knows it because we've known each other, I guess, marginally for about eight years or so, maybe more. I used to feel so Uh, sorry for you. Uh, oh man, I feel so old, but I used to do uh, <laughs> PR here in Brazil, uh, not for the UC directly, but I worked for a company called Textual and my only client was the UC. So basically kind of, I can understand these struggles and uh, being faced with these types of decisions. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I got to say, I, I never went as far as to do that, but I felt tempted, especially when it was a fighter that I had to translate for all the time. And I already knew what they were going to say. <laughs> can we just skip the middle just, just, just let me answer like it's exactly. just easier yeah. <laughs> but I never did so yeah you have to carry that on your conscience and, but that's okay we don't judge here I did fess up I did tell Dana and I told Lorenzo okay and now you're yeah. telling all my five listeners so yeah. <laughs> I think you've paid, <laughs> you've paid your dues uh, I, we could talk forever but my producer Chris won't let me uh, it's his fault He's the villain. Uh, I'm just going to go out and say this because he can't really say anything. So there's that. Well, he can. He can unmute himself and out me, but he's nice. I, I, I wouldn't not, do so that. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> See? Uh, sorry, Chris. Uh, but I think that's a good note for us to end this episode on. I'm kind of bad at goodbyes. I come from a broken home, so I have a tough time letting go. But <laughs> before I go, I think that uh, I'll let you and take it away. Uh, plug whatever you want to plug. Um, I think that the book uh, came out in the U.S. Today we're recording on a Tuesday. So tomorrow when the episode come out, comes out on Wednesday. But anyway, so by the time this episode airs, I believe the book will be out in the U.S.? Yeah, books are out in the U.S. The U.S. edition's got an extra chapter, and uh, you know you won't have to pay, uh, you know, import tax, uh, and you also won't think that I can't spell at all because we Americanize all the spellings because we know Americans think that, in- that American English is the true English, and if I spell color with a U and an O, uh, you know, or favor uh, with a U and O, that I'm just a terrible writer. But uh, that's why we Americanize it. So make sure you get that one. It's available now, Amazon, Kindle. All good bookstores. Plug your Substack too, your Twitter. Do your thing. You have the oh, okay. floor. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> my, my newsletter is the ultimate society. Uh, if you go to Ant Evans, uh, Ant Evans ever May, uh, there's a link there. Uh, yes, the uh, I will be telling some of the stories that you've heard just now, uh, but there's also some more serious stuff from uh, behind the scenes uh, of uh, MMA and, and boxing. So I think it's different stuff that you might find uh, elsewhere from a different perspective so uh, yeah check it out please you don't know but uh, on the intro I did mention Mark Coleman and his and I quote leathery nutsack so I think people kind of know what to expect from your newsletter Um, of course I had to zoom in on that obviously (laughs) (laughs) and uh, I guess I should plug my own stuff too I guess while we're at it actually I just want to ask you to if you don't subscribe to this lovely podcast if you like it uh rate it share it uh tweet about it whatever else helps spread the gospel of well actually out there into the world help fulfill my dream of becoming a shady cult leader and uh, that's gonna be it for this week's episode i will see you next week here for more mma and other stuff 